The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we work each and every week of the year to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Lots going on in the real estate world right now. Not only are we, you know, looking at ever-increasing interest rates and inflation and sales slowing down and that'll be followed by a price drop but there's a lot of stuff out there going on right now to help you deal with that to help you avoid the challenges and grab the opportunities one of those things is tomorrow night's real estate investors association of greater cincinnati meeting which is online so don't 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 tune out because i said it was Maria of Cincinnati. It's an online meeting and it is about how to do real estate when you also have a full-time job. We've got a panel of members who have been doing that in some cases for many years and they're going to talk about the resources and people and scheduling and all the stuff that they uh, use to do both of those things successfully. Uh, the early meeting is about estate planning. It's about how to keep your family from um, fighting with each other, going to court, all of that sort of stuff. Should something happen to you, that is with Elliot Feldman, who is an attorney here in Ohio. And that class happens to be good for an hour of continuing ed credit for Ohio realtors who attend. So uh, if you're an Ohio realtor, you might want to make sure you log in at 7 and get to that part of the meeting. Uh, you can get information and a pass and a Zoom link and all that sort of stuff at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. Um, I'm going to make a, an announcement that I'm not really supposed to make because uh, the, the theory is that at this moment, uh, registrations for the 2022 National Real Estate Summit are closed. We have uh, 1,059 people signed up to come for a an event where the rooms hold 950 people. Uh, but we also know that a number of you guys who got it during the fun drive uh, did it to get the audios, and you're not actually planning on coming in person. And uh, there, there are always, you know, a certain number of people who, you know, they bought a ticket for their friend, and then their friend wasn't really interested in real estate after all. So we've got a, a little bit of slush there, but uh, we are, we are sort of holding those last 41 tickets for members of Ohio RIA groups and other VIPs. And I consider my listeners VIPs. I'm sorry. I just do. 
So until 6 o'clock tonight, and that is it, you can still get a ticket to the event at wmkvfm.org. After 6 o'clock tonight, sorry, <laughs> we're, we're full. I mean, a good problem to have two and a half weeks out from the event. And, of course, there's there's a good reason it's full. It's a really, really good event. And one of the really, really good things about that event is that my guest today, Jason Roberts, will be there talking for the first time about his new love, which is uh, group homes, uh, you know, shared shared housing type facilities. He's actually been in the real estate business since 2001 when he was still in his early 20s and started a mortgage brokerage. Uh, you can imagine what happened to that come 2007. So he changed gears, got into the real estate investing world and has been going strong there ever since. Uh, he's joining us from his home near St. Louis. Jason, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Bina. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I'm glad to have you, but I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a question for you. You yeah. have been on this show at least four times in the last 10 years talking about how great flipping properties is. I mean, yep. you were a dyed in the wool, buy them, fix them, flip them, forget them guy. And now all you can talk about to anybody in any conversation is shared housing and how, how much you love it and how great it is. What happened? <laughs> um, that's a great question. It, it kind of happened by accident. Um, you know, I guess you don't know what you don't know sometimes. And, you know, real estate was always a vehicle for me to live the quality of life that I wanted to live, to have, you know, time freedom, financial freedom. And it's it bought all of those things. And I always kind of said, if I found something that made more money in less time, uh, I'd be teaching that. But for the last 10 years, um, I hadn't come across that. And I don't know how far down the path you want me to go, but we, a student of mine brought me a, a deal in Kansas City, Missouri, a 22-unit apartment building, and he ran into a nonprofit that was looking to house um, homeless HIV positive, and they had 90-something people that they had an endowment to house, and they had nowhere to put them. Um, and Matt had been, was working on that apartment building, and I mean, just, just like that, they signed a master lease on all 22 units, whether they were full, vacant, empty, whatever, um, five-year lease, master lease on 22 units at above market rate, and it was in a C or D neighborhood, which we would, we would have never got market rate in that area. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt like I had hit by a bus. I've been passing on stuff like this for the last 10 years, you know? Um, it, it just opened my eyes to a world that I didn't necessarily know was there or didn't necessarily understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think... On that particular building, the numbers look so good with these folks having this master lease that it raised the value of the building like way up above what it would have been had it had regular market rate tenants in it. And you guys ended up selling it. Am I am I thinking of the right building? Yep, absolutely right. We we held it for two years. It cash flowed around seven thousand a month. Um, and this wasn't an expensive property. Or we bought it for I think. 250, 300 ish, and we put about 400, uh, about 300 in it. So we were only in it for, you know, 600, five to 600,000 dollars, and we sold it for right at 1.6, 1.5, and some high change oh uh, two years later, two years into the five year master lease. And and if you hadn't been able to show a buyer that that huge guaranteed income, what do you think the building would have been worth? 
half, half of that, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I think that if we would have rented it for market rent, number one, it would have been hard to fill. Um, or not even market rent, just the rent for the area. We would have probably gotten $200 per unit less than what the nonprofit made us. And we would have had a hard time filling it. We'd had a hard time keeping it full. We'd had a hard time turning them. It just, it made a deal that would have never made sense. That's why it was on the market. You know, it, the deal didn't make sense unless you had that nonprofit in your pocket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Not that deal, but about uh, just in general, this whole idea of shared housing of cre- creating, running, uh, maybe selling if you uh, create a, a nice little business there that's generating a lot of money, uh, shared housing for different types of vulnerable populations. And we're also going to take listener questions, calls and emails. If you guys want to just call in your question, it's 877 877- Seven seven two nine six five eight eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, and uh, if you're you know at work or something you don't want your boss to know you're secretly passionate about real estate you can send us an email at askvina at gmail dot com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host Vina Jones Cox. My guest today is Jason Roberts, who is a recovering flipping addict. And somebody should somebody should create shared housing for recovering flipping addicts. Because it cured me. Because <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know, I think all wholesalers and retailers eventually have that aha moment where they're like, "This is making me really good money right now." <laughs> what I would like to have is money. In the future, <laughs> yeah. and every month, you know, whether I go, yeah, I, go... I don't necessarily have to go to work for it. Exactly, and uh, so yeah, I think I think we I think everyone has that moment, Jason. So it's okay that you did too. Um, you know, it, it it feels to me like at this moment in history, shared housing is what Airbnb was twelve years ago. If you remember those days, you know, there was a lot of chatter about it and people were aware that such a thing existed and they were aware that their friends who did them were making like two or three times the amount of money on their Airbnbs that they were making on their regular rentals. But no one really knew, like there there was nobody was out there like teaching how to do it. And now, you know, like it's, it's, it's enough in the air that like lots of people own Airbnbs right beside their rentals. But the people who got in first, a lot of them built up literally portfolios of Airbnbs that they then sold for millions of dollars to companies that now exist for the purpose of buying existing Airbnbs. And it feels like we're, it feels like we're kind of like at the kind of starting point with shared housing and that we're going to in, in 10 years, we're all going to be going, man, I got, I'm glad I got into that early. Yeah, should have jumped in on that. Yep. 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 So... Of course, the the issue, and I know you, you you are one of the very few people out there teaching this, and the only one I know of who's sort of teaching it in a population agnostic way. In other words, you're not you're not teaching let's house this kind of person. You're just saying let's house people, and there are different yeah. kinds of people we can house. Um, the 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 first thing people hear when they hear shared housing is oh well that's like one of those group homes where. 
it's all full of ex-convicts who are shooting each other at night. Like they have a bad, <laughs> they have a bad impression of the idea of a group home, right? If you see a group sure. home in the paper, it's usually because the neighbors are protesting it <laughs> or something like that. So why do you think that this is like a viable strategy for normal people? You know, um, a couple things hit my radar when we did that first deal. My stepdaughter was telling me what she was paying for rent at Mizzou um, College in, in Missouri. And I think she said, I don't know, $1,100 or something like that for her apartment. And I thought, you know, it, it didn't really set off any bells or something. And then she was making a comment about her, this girl, this her roommate, this girl, this, you know, she had three other roommates. Um, and I said, oh, so you guys all throw in on that 1100 so it's really only, you know, $300 for you. And she's like, no, 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 my, my rent's 1100 I said, well, what do you mean your rent's 1100 if you have a three or four bedroom apartment? And she goes, no, we, they don't, they don't rent it by apartment anymore up here. They rent it by room. So, you know, a typical three or four bedroom apartment that would have been 12 to 1500 bucks a couple years ago, they're getting that time for. And, then when I started seeing, you know, all these other things in all these other areas, it was very similar. Um, but what really blew my mind is that how does nobody, you know, how did nobody know about this? I mean, there's there's a nonprofit in Kansas City that has the money to house 90-something people. There's not a single investor trying to fill that need. Like, that just seemed crazy to me, but it also seemed like enormous opportunity. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, you know, student rentals have actually been that way for a long time uh, yeah. it, 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 before it was formal, it, where the, the owner just said, y'all three are going to sign a lease, but you each have a bedroom. Students were doing it themselves. <laughs> they, okay. they, you yeah. know, they were they were saying oh, the, the rent here is three thousand a month. We'll each pay a thousand. Right. And sure. and there have been some some kinds of populations that this is a this is a standard living arrangement. Um, we've got a, a house in the in the neighborhood I live in that is uh, all uh, Down syndrome adults. So they okay. they need supportive housing. Right. They can't they, they don't want to live with their parents anymore because they're 25. Yep. But at the same time, their parents don't want them like trying to rent an apartment and get around themselves and all that sort of stuff. So they, they live together in a supportive housing situation. And it's, it's by the way, way cheaper for them than renting a house. Cause even, even at 11 or 1200 bucks a month, they're getting a lot of stuff with that. And yes, there's, sure. there's the folks who house recovering addicts or um, what do we call them now? Returning citizens, what we used to call ex convicts. And uh, you you mentioned uh, HIV positive homeless people uh, there's there's lots of populations that can be housed this way and that and that need to be housed this way because otherwise they end up homeless. So what what are what are some of the other population the populations that you or your students have like had a passion for and decided I'm going to create a group home for this? Well, the the second deal that came across my plate uh, again on accident. It was a student, longtime student of mine from Milwaukee. He called and said, hey, I've got this living deal. And, you know, so, of course, I'm diving into it. I'm diving into the numbers, you know, kind of evaluating it like you would a multifamily or apartment building. And at the same time, I have another friend that's working on a big apartment, $44 million apartment building. Like, I've never even closed anything close to that size. And 
I'm looking at the cash flow on the 94 bed assisted living facility, and it's more than a $4 million purchase price than the cash flow on the $44 million apartment building. And I'm thinking, you know, I got, I got to be doing something wrong here. And the more I dug into the numbers, the more it was right. Um, so the next population, you know, that, that I got interested in or that came across our path was, a, you know, community-based residential facilities, assisted living. Mm-hmm. And so those are typically senior citizens. Um, ours is 94 residents, and it's, it's anything from developmentally disabled to handicapped to quadriplegic, paraplegic to old, older people. Um, it's kind of kind of across the board. Oh, okay. So just whoever needs help with their daily living stuff. That's right. Okay. Exactly right. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, we've got a we've got a gal who's coming to the national summit uh, from Youngstown specifically for the purpose of seeing you. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if she's only going to go to your thing and then leave. But um, her, she's been working for years with uh, veterans organizations. Yep. And a- apparently, um, the homeless uh, problem amongst veterans, and particularly, I mean, the Vietnam War era veterans are now in their 70s. That's like shocking to me. Um, but especially amongst that that group of people, and she she is she just is like really devoted and passionate about them, and she's not even kind of looking at this as an investment to make money, but rather to pro- provide these people with housing that they can afford and that has the support that they need. And I mean, there's just there's there's so much demand. I mean, all, all you hear in the newspapers is there's no affordable housing. There's no affordable housing. Well, who gets pushed out first is vulnerable sure. populations. So it happens that you can also make a lot of money doing that, <laughs> so, right. which, which is yeah, cap- capitalism usually solves all problems eventually. And this is a this is a good example of that. So um, you've mentioned a part you mentioned an apartment building and then you mentioned a 94 bed facility that was already it, it already existed. Correct. If we if we wanted to start exploring the idea of creating a shared housing situation. What kinds of properties would we maybe go out and look for? And what kinds of areas would we go out and look for them? Sure. So I, you know, I got a crash course on this over the last few years. Um, you know, I think you learn faster by doing some time than, than anything else. And, you know, we, we didn't really have a choice. We had to learn this stuff as fast as we could. Um, one thing is Medicaid in the assisted living world pays per bed. And, you know, ours, we have 94 residents, but there is 10 single family homes um, in regular subdivisions. But Medicaid allows us to put two beds per bedroom. So if Medicaid pays $3,900 per bed and you can put two beds in a bedroom and you've got a five bedroom house, that's some cash flow. Um, and, and it's, you're, you're, really helping people at the same time, you know? So that, uh, typically the more bedrooms, um, the more you can monetize that. I also think at the same time, you need to, you need to check with the, whoever the regulatory body is or the the agency that's paying for it, you know, what their rules and restrictions are. For instance, with the assisted living stuff, we have to have a commercial grade, uh, sprinkler system. And that's not something that's in typical residential houses, and it's very, very expensive. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about homeless veterans or something like that, there's, there's probably not 
too many restrictions at all other than maybe some municipality stuff you need to check with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we do need to talk through that, too, in a minute because that's where, you know, if you're talking about... I want to do shared housing. I've got a particular population I want to house. The rules might be different if if you were housing uh, the, the elderly versus housing uh, you know somebody else, right? Uh, 100%. So you're saying apartment buildings are good. You've also done uh, you've also done basically existing facilities, and I, I assume that. If we're looking for existing facilities, ideally, it's just like any other thing. We're looking for distressed ones, right? Ones that they, they haven't kept the beds full, they're run down, something like that. hundred uh, percent. And that was the exact situation with the one we bought. Um, the gentleman that opened it 30 years ago, his daughter was developmentally disabled, and he was an RN, a nurse. And him and his wife went around, toured all the facilities that they could find and hopes to find a place to put their daughter in. They were just unhappy with all of them. So that, that was really his start. So he bought a house, you know, put his daughter in it and filled it with caretakers and some other residents. And then, you know, he did a good job and the community noticed it. They started sending more, started, started sending more. So he went, you know, kind of on accident from one home to 10 homes and and 94 residents. Um, and so that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of the direction that he built. So he wasn't, he wasn't a business guy. He wasn't an investor guy. He was a nurse that was taking care of people, and he was uh, he owned it for thirty years. He was getting older, and his kids. He tried to put his kids in charge of it, and they were fighting over it. You know what I'm done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was like it was like I'm looking at comparables. You know, comps for similar properties, and the cheapest you could find in the Milwaukee area is a hundred thousand a bed, and most of them were priced around one hundred twenty thousand per bed. And we ended up buying that. Um, for, for right at 40000 per bed. Mm. So I, I honestly think in a worst-case scenario situation, it's worth twice what we paid for it the day we closed on it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a super cool story in and of itself, you know? So they they were running it more as like a passion project than a business, and when the business owners got older and didn't want to run it anymore, it sort of started... I mean, it's just just like the mom-and-pop grocery store, right? If mom-and-pop aren't, exactly right. aren't there anymore, it's, it's maybe, you know, not going to be run as well. And you just taught me some new language, which is price per bed. That's yep. that's something I bet you don't hear outside of the group housing world. <laughs> Probably not. Um, and it was it was kind of new to me too. Um, but that's the that's the lingo for that. Um, you know, if you, if you run into an agent that specializes in it, that's kind of kind of how they price those. Okay, so it's it sounds like we've now we've now covered the whole gamut of types of properties that might have multiple bedrooms. You you said apartment buildings, existing purpose built facilities, and biggish single family homes will all work. Yeah. Yeah. So the only, the only thing the only thing we maybe wouldn't be looking for would be like a condo or a mobile home or something like that. But you also Correct. mentioned, and I want to I want to. Uh, get to this in detail after we take this quick break is uh regulation regulation right. that's not that's not always the first thing people think about here but it's something they have got to think about uh we're going to take a quick break talking today to Jason Roberts about his new love which is investing in shared housing also 
ready to take your questions on shared housing at 877-772-9658. Again, that's 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Jason Roberts. Been been here on the show many times in the last 10 years. But today we're talking about the thing that he um, has been doing for the last two years, kind of secretly. Like, I didn't know about this until about six weeks ago. And uh, is now out teaching, including at the 2022 National Real Estate Investing Summit coming up here in Cincinnati, November the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. If you didn't catch it at the top of the show, we are basically sold out. We've got about 41 tickets that are kind of held aside in case we have VIPs who want to register. And uh, I consider all of my listeners VIPs. So until 6 o'clock tonight, you can still get a ticket at wmkvfm.org, and then it will disappear from the site, never to be seen again, and we'll be talking about 2023 instead. So, uh, Jason, I, I want to I wanna clean up a couple of questions that are in my inbox. Sure. Natalie heard you say the words master lease, and, yep. and she doesn't know what that means. So can you explain what a master lease, what the, the master lease is in this yeah, situation? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I don't know that I necessarily knew what it was before I, I stumbled across that either. Um, master lease in this case meant that they are signing one lease that is for every unit in the apartment building. So we had 22 units. And so it was one lease that they signed, and they rented all 22 units in that one lease, meaning that it wasn't our job to fill them. It wasn't our job to turn them. It wasn't our job to evict tenants. It wasn't our job to collect rent. We only had we only had one tenant for all 22 units, and whether they were empty, full, or halfway in between, we got paid the same amount every month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that one cleaned up, we are going to go to the regulations issue, and then we're going to come back to the five emails in my email box from people that say, I have a building I think would be perfect for this, but I need to know. Okay, so the regulation issue. You generally can't just pick a house, set it up for multiple people, open your doors and say, Good go. Yeah. this is shared housing. And there, there are, as I understand it, and I may be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, there are actually two sets of issues. One is zoning, and the other one is kind of licensing slash regulation around how it has to be run. Is that accurate? Agreed. Okay, yeah. so let, let's tackle the zoning issue first. What what it, what is the potential problem there? So, this you really need to dig into state by state, county by county. Um, for instance, in Milwaukee, you know, well, let me back up here in St. Louis. Almost every subdivision, at least where I'm at, um, has an HOA, homeowners association, and you know they range from doing really nothing to cutting the grass and and doing trash and water and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that I've ever lived in a subdivision that didn't have some sort of association that you belong to that, you know, could range from 60 bucks a month to three or 400 bucks a month, depending on what they do. And in those HOAs, they have all kinds of covenants and rules and you can do this and you can't do that. You can't put up a shed you can't have a boat in your driveway and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, oftentimes, 
they reference shared housing or occupancy or the number of people um, and those types of things. Mm -hmm. When we bought up where we ran up in Milwaukee, I don't know why, but everywhere we've looked and we're all 10 of our houses. I mean, these are just regular residential houses and nice subdivisions. Um, you'd, ha you'd have no idea from the street. And I'm not finding that there. So mm -hmm. as we've started to evaluate deals in other states and other areas, uh, I'm learning kind of it, it's, it's a case-by-case -case basis. And you really, my first recommendation would be to start with, you know, the, the governing body that oversees that type of thing. So like in Wisconsin, it's the Department of Health Services. And... DHS. So they have all their guidelines, all their rules, and most of it's online. Um, it's a lot. And uh, if you're not a super detailed person like me, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but it's, it's all right there. You know, you can't miss it. They, they spell it out for you. Mm -hmm. um, then to your second point is the zoning side of things, which is going to be your city or county. And depending on different areas, they have different classifications for the amount of people that you have in the home, what you're using it for, those types of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We did not have to change zoning on our Milwaukee properties. Our, our Dan did in the beginning. Like I said, they're just residential houses and subdivisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you can literally, I mean, because zoning is usually done super locally like it's done by the city yep. or the township or the, so you could literally have a house on one side of the street over the county line where you could create a group house with no problems. And then on the other side of the street, you can't <laughs> because it's in a, right. it's in a different township. And they say, uh, you know, we can only, we can only allow that zoning classification in uh, these five, you know, highlighted areas. So something, something to look before anybody runs out and starts looking for something to turn into a shared home, do that research. And then the, the other kind of level is um, I know from having spoken uh, several times to the late Jean Guarino that with uh, senior housing, the states tend to have certain regulations that say things like you need to have uh, somebody there with a certain kind of degree 24 hours a day or 12 hours a day, and you have to have hardwired uh, sprinklers and so it, it's kind of a it's kind of a different thing instead of saying can you even put the place there it says if you're going to put the place there you need to comply with certain regulations how do how would people find that out for the particular kind of group housing they wanted to do so i i back back up to like again whatever we, we got to do some research on what kind of the the governing agency over that would be. And that, so there, there's two different things to look at. So with assisted housing, for instance, or assisted living, we are, we've got two places we have to deal with. One is Department of Health Services, which is really the state. And they have their regulations on how many square feet the bedrooms are, how many, you know, how many feet from the bedroom to the bathroom. Um, we just got cited for having a pocket door in a house. Um <laughs> House has been there 20 years. The state inspectors have come by twice a year for the last 20 years. Never cited the pocket door. We get cited for the pocket door. Um, I guess there's some sort of risk in having a pocket door. I don't know, but we have to tear it out. Um, in addition to DHS, you have what's called an MCO, which is the, the agency that Medicaid contracts with that pays us. And so... 
like one of them called My Choice Wisconsin, and that's who we actually bill, and then My Choice bills uh, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Well, My Choice Wisconsin also has their overlays, their sets of rules and restrictions and guidelines. So, in this world, you know, we're we're getting the, the requirements from the state, and then we're comparing them to My Choice Wisconsin and making sure that we're abiding by both sides of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna have to leave that discussion there. I mean, we could do hours on on all the things that you do to research this and yep. uh, the process and the, the fact that, by the way, you're not gonna buy a house tomorrow and open it up as a shared ho- housing facility the next day because this stuff takes time and you've got to build that into your thoughts about how much money or me and my partner is gonna make on this. Um, so let's let's go to the listener questions, which are are all uh, many of them are kind of along the same line, uh, sure. because apparently you have very much interested a lot of people who like the idea of I want to work with another group that already serves the population I want to serve. And, and and either have them master lease or I'm happy to run the facility. I just need people to put into it. So Ricardo says, I have called some halfway houses and talked to veterans groups. They didn't seem to have any good leads to fill any houses I might have. And I have some that would work for this model. So his question is, how do you find nonprofits that are looking to house people? Okay. So uh, I'm not a, uh extremely political person but there was some some bill or some just gigantic amount of money that was passed recently and billions of dollars in that bill is earmarked for homelessness across the country and so that money when it leaves the government's hands will flow into these different nonprofits. and i would imagine if you dig i would imagine that's public information um but nonprofits in and of themselves aren't real hard to find you know a simple google search in the county or city that you're in and you can start to uncover those things, you know, just your circle of influence, area of influence, the people that you know, know somebody that's involved in something. And they all they all serve different things, from battered women's shelters to, like I said, homeless HIV. Um, I didn't even know there was such a thing, you know, and that was that was a government endowment. That was not random people who donated to provide housing for 94 people. Um that's government money. It was government endowment. So I just hit the books. You know, I start searching, start pulling data. And like anything else, like your regular real estate investing business, um, what I would say is different about this is, to me, I want to find the lead source first, and then I can back into the property, which is polar opposite of what we do as real estate investors, mm-hmm. right? We, we're 100% focused on finding the property. We get a rehab. We get it cleaned up. Then we throw it on the MLS, and the MLS, for the most part, sells it. To me, this is different. To me, this is about finding the lead source, the referral source, and then we can potentially, in a lot of cases, just buy the house straight off the MLS. You know, we don't have to do all this all this crazy marketing. We don't have to send all these letters and text messages and emails and follow-ups and all that kind of stuff because once we know what they're willing to pay for bed, once we can properly analyze our costs, then we know what we can pay per bed or pay per home, um, which to me makes it easier to analyze. Yeah, that's su- super smart because when, when you find these organizations, you somehow you sometimes find that they are uh, kind of embedded in a neighborhood. 
And what they really want is for their clients to be able to be housed in that neighborhood because they've got services for them up the street, right? (laughs) I had, I had mentioned to you when we first started talking about this that I had a house that I thought would be really ideal for some kind of shared housing because it was literally like an 11 bedroom giant mansion. Well, what ended up happening with that is, uh, we put it, we, we, I decided I didn't want to do the rehab. It was like $150,000 of the rehab. And um, I put it in MLS and the very first person who called worked with a church two blocks away that works with recovering addicts. Wow. And he bought it, paid full price. I'm sure he's going to make all sorts of money off of it. But, you know, how smart is that, that he found the church first, found out what they wanted and needed. And then said, let me go find something. <laughs> let me go find something that, that will help you do this. Uh, so uh, actually, we need to take a quick break. I've got like five other questions in the inbox that I want to get to, but uh, we also have to, you know, traffic, weather, all that sort of stuff. So uh, if you still have a question about shared housing, you can try sending it to askvina at gmail.com. Hopefully we'll get to it during the break, but we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Jason Roberts, who, along with his partner, Rachel, has an hour and a half at the National Real Estate Summit coming up here in Cincinnati on November 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th, uh, where he's actually going to have a slide presentation. I won't be interrupting him too much. It'll, it'll, you know, he's going to kind of take you through all the basics of this in, in, in a row and in the right order. Right now, though, we are uh, dealing with some listener questions. And, and Jason, this email right here is why I feel like this is a vast untapped market, because this is about the third person I've talked to who had a similar story, which is, how do I set up my own for me? She says... Uh, I'm listening in from Waldorf, Maryland. I was diagnosed with MS about four months ago, and I'm dealing with some mobility issues. I need help with some house cleaning and sometimes part of my meal prep. I don't need help showering, dressing, using the bathroom, taking meds. I've met other people with MS, and they need the same type of help. Some of them are being abused by spouses or family members and would leave if there was a place to go that provided a little help when needed without being an assisted living facility. I would like to provide them with a safe place and understand their needs. My question is, can I have an on-site live-in house manager handling the cleaning and meal prep and it still be an independent living facility? Thank you, Janine. It's a great question. Um, and I would, uh, I would refer that straight to the attorney that we worked with that knew all the licensing laws and guidelines and everything else. Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm sure. That would fall under DHS in Wisconsin, Department of Health Services, which is there's probably a similar agency in every state. But that's that's an interesting thing, um, and it may be maybe a market that again that no one's really paying attention to. Mm-hmm. If if the resident is able to 100% care for themselves, I, I don't know what kind of rules or restrictions it would fall under. But then my next question would be. Is that going to be a private pay situation, or are you going to try to, you know, get medic- Medicaid to pay for it? Um, it's a private pay situation, I would imagine, and they're completely able to, to take care of themselves. Um, 
Yeah, help with meal prep. Again, I'm not a jury, but I, I, I don't know that you're going to fall under a whole lot of rules there. Help, um, help with meal prep is not the same thing as I got to give people shots every day. You know, like, that's right. like there's that's right. so it doesn't or seem like meds or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it seems like there wouldn't need to be a a, a medical person there all the time. And uh, we actually have uh, somebody who's a member of one of our groups who runs something like what you're talking about. And here in Ohio, found that there was no licensing for it because the people were able to live independently. So your first step is talk to your city, talk to your state and say, look, I'm going to be living there. I mean, this is, this is like basically my house and I'm kind of renting out some of the rooms and yeah, the people are have some mild disabilities, but nothing that we're not going to have doctors because we don't need them. And uh, just search around and see what they have to say. And it's a great idea, by the way. Okay, so question from Chandra. She says, how does an, oh, also from Maryland, says, how do I get, how does a nurse practitioner get started in this? My special population are those young adults who have aged out of foster care. I have wasted so much money over the past three years on hotel rooms for some youth who aged out. I knew there was a better, more economical way. So I'm sorry, what was the question? The question was how how does she's a nurse practitioner. She's not she's not a real estate investor. She's not a like how how would she start taking the first steps on this? Yep. So I, the very first thing that I would do, and, I, and I'll I'll parallel this for you with what I have going on here in St. Louis. So after we closed on the ninety four bed in Wisconsin, my mom's a nurse at RN, she's been an RN for forty years. She works for a big hospital group here in St. Louis called SSM. So I was talking to her about this, and, you know, she thinks it's super cool because finally I'm doing something in her world that she understands. And she was saying, Jason, you know, man, if you did that here in St. Louis, you would have all the business you could ever want. Man, you know, all, all my friends at the hospital, they can't stand the places that they refer to. You know, you've got mattresses on the floor. They don't take care of the people right. And so, you know, obviously as a business person, I'm paying attention to this. And so a couple weeks later, I went to lunch with my mom's director and another lady. And, you know, I just started extracting from them, like, what don't you like? What would you like to see? And those types of things. Um, And by the end of that conversation, they said, Jason, if you could correct those issues that we experienced and do the things you're talking about, you would have every single referral from 40 or 50 social workers from SSM. Um, I don't have a fraction of that referral-wise in Wisconsin. We probably get 20 referrals a week. Um, constantly, day after day, week after week. So to answer your question, um, whoever in your community, social worker, whatever, is responsible for placing them or, or helping them or dealing with them, um, that's the person who is going to be placing them in homes and has those relationships on where to place them. Well, it, it, so feel, that's, it feels that's like... That's exactly where I would start. It feels then, like it's that's already her. It feels like she's the one who's already working with them. And what she needs is to figure out how to how to buy, set up, run, finance the property yeah, okay. that she would be putting them in. Well, that's a great I mean, that's uh, that's the exact problem that we want to have. When I when I said earlier, figure out the referral source first and then back into the property. Um, so I would start asking questions like, you know, what what does Medicaid pay? per bed can you put two beds in a room like we need to start doing our deal about stuff um which i'll i'll get into but 
we got to start running the numbers just like we would on a, on a fix and flip, right? But it's just a little bit different. And really what we're doing in this world is trying to get a realistic total of our income and a realistic total of our expenses. And depending on what level of care you offer, obviously, you know, we spend close to $20,000 a month on food. Um, that's mm-hmm. not a normal line item in a, in a real estate deal. Um, you know, we've got really high insurance because we're dealing with people that can fall, people that pass away. Um, totally different. So mm-hmm. we have to start identifying what some of those things are, putting the pen to paper. And then the easy part is seeing what a four bedroom house costs in our community and doing the math at, you know, 30 or six or 7% or whatever it is, it's 20% down. And, and here's, you know, here's our cost for the real estate. Mm-hmm. Now she wants, she wants to work with kids that I assume are like 18, 19, 20 years old. And, and this is another thing that's hard to discuss in an hour on the radio. Um, <laughs> one of the things you have to look at in expenses is how much turnover you're going to have. Because I I assume that the goal with these 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds is they have a roof over their heads, but they are being prepared to go get their own place probably sooner rather than later, if possible. So are, are you going to have beds empty for weeks or, or is there, are you always going to have a list of, you're always going to be going, I need more beds. (laughs) I've got got more kids. We, we see like a, a, we're a little over two years on average, if you want to call it like a churn rate. Um, I have a student in Oregon right now that's evaluating a rehab facility, a, a drug rehab facility that pays $800 per day from the state and, and they do 90 day stays at a time. So it's, it's even more bonkers than the assisted living stuff, but you're having to refill that bed every 90 days. Yep. So again, that's, that's really getting confident with your lead sources and understanding how many people they're coming across. The good news is a lot of this data is available. When you look at the senior population, when you look at the sharp increase in drug addiction and and relapse and all those types of things, it's exponentially growing way faster than any builders across the country could build enough places to house people. Which is another thing that makes this a super hot strategy that people need to learn more about, but unfortunately it can't be right now. (laughs) We're we're out of time. Jason, looking forward to seeing you at the National Summit in two weeks. Uh, Last chance listeners to pick up a ticket to that, wmkvfm.org. You got until 6 o'clock. Hope to see you there. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.